even congratulating myself for seeing these thoughts wasn't working anymore. There was like. Well, why does things have to keep working anymore? Well, well, hold on, hold on. So I would like a good example. <laughs> I know you're right. You're right. That's a good point. Um, but I caught myself say something like everything is fine. Everything is okay. And then guess what I did? I was like, no, it's not. But it's also not too. Like everything is fine and everything isn't fine. There's no evidence of everything is fine any more than everything isn't fine. It was like. What, an, what does fine mean? Like everything is okay. Everything's all right. Is it a double zero or a zero or a number one sandpaper? I mean, what is fine? Yeah, in my mind, it was death. It was like the, the, the assurance, the certainty of life. And what I realized was that, well, without the belief of an I thinking everything is fine, there's no everything is fine. I could, I could die in the next second. I have no idea. And that's the truth of it. I was, I was facing the actual truth of the moment. Like, and to the calendar, that's fine. For humanity is actually quite fine that you died. I mean, aren't you glad that Caesar Augustus is dead and has been for 2000 years? What would the world be like if he didn't die? <laughs> How about Jesus? If they keep saying that he didn't die, but guess what? <laughs> what would the world be like if Jesus had stayed alive? Would Christianity be the same as it was? No, it wouldn't. No. Everything changes, everything dies, and it's quite fine that you die. Yeah. From the perspective well, of a bigger reality. Yeah. And very, very tiny reality. When I die, that's me. So then what happened is I just really honestly, like things just started unraveling and I I couldn't do the 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 anapanasati anymore. I, I couldn't notice th there was there was a, there was less of a differentiation between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. Whenever I saw an unwholesome, like it just didn't matter. It got to a point where it's like, well, this doesn't. There's no congratulating myself because there's no. That means that there's a I that believes it has to congratulate itself in order to be wholesome, but that. That presumes that there's this I that believes that it has to be wholesome. So it all just started collapsing and it felt like, okay, I'm just going to roll with this. There's no, I'm just going to enjoy the show, I guess. I'm just going to let it be. And um, my, my breathing, even still right now, feels different. Um, there's just, it's it's weird. But then, you know, the part about it that I would say that um, I'm struggling with is that once I, I know, right? It's funny. <laughs> I'm struggling with, yes, I heard that. Right, I know. Um, but once an unwholesome thought showed up again later on in the day, I don't know, it, it seemed like that's, it was like I was in a state of non-duality, I think, is what happened. I mean, we don't have to describe no it. No labels necessary. Yeah, we don't have to describe it. But whatever that experience was, I don't think it's here now. And I noticed clinging to that. Thanks and I was like, okay. And go. Everything okay. comes and goes. Yeah. So.
Um, I just thought I should have mentioned that, though, because that had not happened yet from doing Anapanasati. I think I've had experiences like that before, but not in doing Anapanasati. And, and it became very difficult to do Anapanasati because there was no there was no stickiness to the thoughts. So it was there was nothing to congratulate myself for. I don't know if that really makes sense. Does that well, make sense? Yes. You see, the big mistake that all children make is the mistake that I am my thoughts. I am my feelings. I am this body. I am yeah. this, that, and the other thing. I am this attitude and that. And now you're gaining mm. some distance to recognize, no, you are not those thoughts. You can see the thought from the outside instead of the inside. Mm. Another mm. way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you recognize that there's nothing to that thought. Yeah. <laughs> it has no value. It's got no substance to it. Um, yeah. This is the, um, let us say, the budding literature of the uh, Mahayana refers to it as like seafoam. 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 Bubbles. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, you know what seafoam is. And it is insubstantial. Mm-hmm. You pick it up, you blow it, and each one of those bl- bubbles will burst. There's nothing to mm-hmm. any one of them. Mm. except any place you go out on the beach, you're going to find some seafoam. It's everywhere. Mm. So mm. that's what thoughts are. Is they're, they're ubiquitous. They're all over the place. But mm. each individual is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if the uh, uh, individual starts having one thought after another after another that's the same kind of thought he begins to think with those thoughts that this is real Mm. okay that we talk ourselves into believing things and uh then we can't distinguish what's real and what we believe is real Mm. Uh so if we can't take tell the difference between what's real and not real, then that's not being able to see what's the distinction between wholesome and unwholesome. Because when we think it's real and it's not real, that's unwholesome. But if we think it's real and it is real, then that's wholesome. If we think Uh it's real and it's not real, then that's unwholesome. If we know, if we see it's not real, and we know that it's not real, and it is truly in reality not real, then that's wholesome. Mm. Okay, so uh, this fits in exactly with the teaching Patija Samapada in the sense that, as you know, we bring sensory input, the real comes in, the rupa. But by the time we name it, by the time we figure out what it is, by the time we get an internal representation of it, it's different than the reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the example is, is that two guys are standing on this side of the street and they same one, see someone coming down the street on the other side of the street and they're dressed in a certain <laughs> way. Mm-hmm. 
One of them sees it one way and the other one sees it the other. One example that I could use is that one of the guys was raised in Catholic school and he was beaten by the nuns, all of them, with his hands, you know, the rulers and all of that kind of stuff. And so when he sees someone in a nun's habit, he doesn't like it. He's reminded his old memories and he knows what nuns are all about. The other guy is a seminary student. He's all into nuns and everything. So when he sees it, that nuns have it walking down the street, he likes it. Mm. The reality is, is that this is a Halloween costume. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I get it. You get it, okay. Yeah, And so the reality is it's a Halloween costume, but people will see something and then mm-hmm. decide that they know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have unwholesome thoughts is because we're making mistakes. So the closer we live to reality, the less dukkha there's going to be. This is mm-hmm. why uh, it is so valuable to keep investigating, keep looking, keep examining Keep pulling apart these thoughts and figuring out what it what's going on with that. Mm. Now, in fact, if we were talking like that, that would be the correct way of doing the Mahasi noting. Mm. Is to see the thought and examine it from various <clears throat> positions. And when we're examining it from various positions, we're actually now mixing in wholesome reality thoughts because we're investigating that unwholesome thought but the way that westerners practice mahasi is they note the thought but then they don't talk about it in a wholesome way they talk about it in an unwholesome way and they continue in the unwholesome because they don't have that understanding that they've got to change their mind into the wholesome even when we're dealing with unwholesome thoughts and so it's very wholesome to deal with the uh, uh, unwholesome thoughts by recognizing there's nothing to it. It's just a it's thought. Like, yeah. Okay. Hold on, Tomorado. Here you go. Oh, that's. Um, blanket. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry, Avi wanted a blanket. <laughs> okay. Um, go ahead, continue. Um, the whole the thoughts are only real themselves because we attach to them as I, me, or mine. My thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I was experiencing earlier. And now you're recognizing, no, they're not your thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just thoughts, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's Well, there's a thought. It's a thought, and usually there's like this sense of an I attached to the thought. But I think I'm even starting to see the I isn't quite me. The I is like a... Well, it's like a... 
is ship I can see in the sky. And that the I or the me or the my that the Buddha, the Anatta, what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about and all of that kind of stuff, we can see scientifically that that is the job of the or the self is called self-preservation instinct because the guys who named it didn't quite understand what was going on. A better word to use would be organism mm. preservation instinct because the instinct is to try to preserve or keep the organism alive. That's what fear is all about. That's why we react quickly to fear is because in the very, very early um, evolutionary stages through our uh, from the time that we were rats 280 million years ago up until four later creatures and all of that. In fact, the rats themselves had fear. And in fact, I imagine the dinosaurs who became the birds also had fear. Fear of staying alive, in other words, not getting eaten. And so sometimes you've got to jump pretty quick. I've seen birds like that, chickens in, uh, in the area and whatnot like that, is when the dogs are chasing them, they run away. Why is it that even a tick, if you pull it off the dog, that tick will try to escape? They'll try to find a place to go hide. Isn't that interesting? That's the self-preservation instinct that is built in down almost, in fact, it is down to the cellular level. It's that deeply buried in instinct. So when that instinct is in operation, its primary language is the language of emotion, the language of fear. That's the language of the child. The child of, of the reptilian brain doesn't have language. It communicates with body chemicals and things like that. That's what the source of the reptilian brain is, is that it's a chemical producing machine. What does it produce? Dopamine, serotonin, uh, uh, indirectly adrenaline, cortisone, all of those bodily chemicals that come into the body come in because of fear. That's the job of the self-preservation instinct is to keep us alive and it keeps us alive by pointing out the danger and the pointing out of the danger is the experience and the feeling of fear. Now, humans have taken that instinct and made it conceptualization so that we feel fear when we hear a loud noise instead of investigating. Dogs do that, by the way, when the dogs hear a loud noise. An example of that would be uh, the old farmer up in the, uh, uh, northern Europe has a dog in the wintertime sitting into hearth in the fireplace with the roof literally covered heavy with snow. They build roofs so that they can handle the heavy snow. And because of the heat of the roof and the, and the fire that's going and all of that, the, the, uh, the snow gets loose and then comes falling down, crashing off the side of the house. 
the old man knows exactly what that is, but the dog doesn't. So the dog is barking, 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 barking. What the hell's going on at that great big crashing sign? And the old farmer, he just looks out of the corner of his eye and he sees all that snow falling off uh, the side of the house. And so he doesn't have the same reaction as the dog does because the dog is acting totally with instinct where the guy is actually putting some wisdom into it that the dog doesn't necessarily have. Okay, so if we understand it from that perspective, the dog at that moment is being very selfish. He's trying to protect himself. He heard a great big loud noise and he feels danger. The man is not being selfish because he knows what's going on. He doesn't feel in danger. So this is why we want to make sure that everyone understands that this whole concept of the Buddha self is actually the experience of danger. Hmm. And what is the danger? I'm in danger. That's the thought that uh, that's the concept. And we reinforce that concept from childhood uh, in childhood from our parents. In other words, this delusion that humans have of I, me and my. Is passed down generation after generation after generation. Selfish parents teach their children to be selfish. Which means that the dangers that the parent feels, he will teach the child to be afraid of those same things. But the ability to be afraid, that's instinctual. <coughs> so this is where the self comes from. It comes from these feelings. OK, and that's why we go around saying I'm afraid or I feel sad. In fact, look at that word right there. I'm afraid or I'm sorry is probably the two most commonly used phrases in the English language. I'm afraid and I'm sorry. Very rarely do you hear people saying I'm on top of the world or I feel great. No, we always go around saying I'm afraid or I'm sorry. I'm afraid to tell you this, or I'm sorry that I got to tell you this. Or I hate to say this. I hate is another one. I hate. I hate. I'm sorry. Because the self is afraid that something is going to happen to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That it'll be diminished in some way. Precisely. But that's. Just uh, that's that's it. That's just a belief. That's you what see. it is. It's right. it's just yes. a belief with nothing to it. Right. The reality is is that there is the feeling of danger. The question is, what triggered that feeling of danger? Because uh, we can use the word worry in the sense of having the same thoughts over and over and over again. And the reason for that thought happening over and over and over again is because underlying that thought is a feeling of fear. But every time we repeat the thought, it keeps the fear going. 
And so it gets into what you would call a vicious cycle where people get worried about something that they can't do anything about. So the uh, the wise thing to do is say, I can't fix that now because I don't have enough information. Let's not worry about it. Let's just mm. wait until we get new information. Mm. Okay. But that's the way, and by that's the way, nice. uh, Yes, and getting new information is the concept, but it's pointing at the fact that we are here in that number six sense of spinning around without proper information. Mm. When in fact, where new information is going to come from is from the external senses, our eyes, our ears. This mm. is uh, the real practice of the Dhamma is to get out of that sixth sense of the worry into the reality of experiencing the show, the reality that's happening mm. in front of us, because that's gathering more and more information that we don't have to necessarily process yet. It's almost like it would be better, uh, let us say for some reason the company sold jigsaw puzzles, but you had to do it on the payment plan. <laughs> So that once uh, a week, they would send you another group of puzzle pieces. Now, most people will take those puzzle pieces that they got today and fix them and put them with the puzzle people pieces that they got last week and get all confused because there's missing pieces that are going to be coming next week. Wouldn't it be better that they wait and don't even open the packages until all the pieces of the puzzle arrive and now we can put the thing together. Probably, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is how reality comes. Reality doesn't come all together with all the pieces at one time. Okay, okay so that's why there's some confusion. Mm -hmm. And that we have to wait until we get more and more pieces of the puzzle. That in fact, you could okay. say that the human mind uh, is, uh, first off, it's built for survival, the fear, rather than happiness. Because happy people are gonna get eaten. Mm. Okay, so what we need is the fear first, and then wisdom and happiness can come later because if we have wisdom, we can see that we are in fact safe rather than being mm. on guard all the time. That we but can we see need, the truth. Okay. But we need the fear as a backdrop. Well, we needed like something the fear to compare to get, the happiness. Well, we needed the fear in childhood. Yeah. Okay. The child need. In fact, here's something that's very interesting. In Western culture, let us say that you've got a campfire. And the guys are camping around, the wife is there, the family is there, and they've got a toddler. Maybe he's not even a toddler, he's still crawling. So you've got an infant that crawls, okay? If that infant crawls towards or into the fire, how many people are going to stop and get that child to stop going into the fire? Surely the mom is going to stop him. Yeah. Okay. There are other cultures, most specifically the uh, Native American <coughs> culture, their infants, if they if that infant crawls into the fire, they're not going to stop him. Why? Because how is a child going to find out about fire by having mom take it away from him? 
but the modern in Western culture doesn't want the child to get hurt. And the, and the Indian mom wants her child to be wise. Which means she's got to experiment, which means she's got to get hurt. So in our culture, by trying to protect ourselves from danger, we wind up living in a very dangerous world. Because we don't know it very well, because we've been protected from it. Hmm. And so we're afraid of all kinds of things that are not being fearful. If we actually were raised in a way to find out what is actually fearful and what is not fearful, then we could go around wisely living our lives happily. Another example would be if you are wise to the fact that the streets of New York are dangerous after midnight, then you don't go onto the streets of New York after midnight. If you know that dark alleys are, are potentially dangerous, you don't go down dark alleys. Okay, this is wisdom is looking at advance and knowing that if that if that situation is potentially dangerous, then I'm going to avoid that situation. And then I'm not going to have any danger. And we can do that wisely rather than going into potentially dangerous situations and letting our fear be our guide in dangerous situations. We can use our wisdom to stay out of danger and stay away from dangerous situations. So now our fear has become, uh, let us say, an adult kind of fear rather than the childlike fear, which is based in emotions. Now it's based in wisdom. So going back to this quality of the fear, then the fear of the child is the fear of me, the child. To where the adult can see the danger is in the situation. Not in the fear of the child. Sorry, can you say that again? Okay. The reality is, is that the situation is dangerous. That's what the adult can see. In other words, the adult has no self in it. He sees that it's the situation that's dangerous. But the ignorant child will walk into the dangerous situation, feel fear. <clears throat> That's where the selfishness comes from. The selfishness is the child feeling the fear uh, that may, in fact, be uh, not real. It may not, in fact, be a, a dangerous situation, but he just feels fear. He's got no wisdom to check it out to see there is no fear here. And so what we do is that we let this fear arise and the fear is the fear of me being in danger rather than the situation or the sit is dangerous. So once the reality, the reality is, is that the situation is dangerous can be avoided. But the ignorant way of doing it is walking into the danger and then feeling the fear as an emotion. And that fear is the self-preservation instinct. So what is it trying to pres preserve? The me, the self. Mm. It doesn't really exist except in the delusion of the fear. Of the fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like 
what you're saying is in one side, like on one side, it's just the situation that's dangerous, but and and that's fear and wisdom. But fear and ignorance is it's not it doesn't have anything to do about the situation. It has to do with the fear of you dying, like mm-hmm. reflected back at you, regardless of the situation, because you're not even going to get close to the situation because there's a fear of death. So mm-hmm. like you don't your your fear of it keeps you from ever facing it. That's actually correct. That's in fact the woeful state of the Ashura, which is that we do not face our fears. We're afraid. In a way, you can say they're uh, the the joke is is that they're these guys are warrior. They're dressed up for battle, but they're afraid to go to battle. <clears throat> Just like the little kid I've told you about on stage, he's dressed as a tree and he walks out on the stage and all he has to say in his little part is I am a tree. But when he walks out on the stage, he becomes terrified, got butterflies in his stomach and he forgets his one line. I am a tree. And here he is dressed as a tree. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is it. The fear. Fear has the quality of a combination of three things. The first thing is to freeze. This is when we freeze. That uh, that is an inst- an instinctual reaction, because in the very old days, uh, eyesight, especially like a, a rhinoceros, rhinoceros don't have good eyesight. Mm-hmm. And so, if you've got two people out, let us say within a hundred meters of that rhino, one of them is standing still, and the other one is walking. The rhino is going to see the guy who's moving. He's not going to see the guy who's standing still. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why that freeze response is there. Now, here's how it was developed. If that happened to where some people were moving, let us say that we were all in pairs and one is moving and the other one is standing still, then the rhinos are going to eat all of the, uh, or kill all of the moving guys and those who are standing frozen are going to survive. This is Darwin Darwinism again, the survival of this of the species or the survival of the fittest means the ones who would have the fear freeze response survived and those who did not have the freeze response in fear. Got eaten. That's why all of us have this freeze response is because it kept us alive. (laughs) Hmm. But it's not really good for, uh, like I said, so the the human brain is built for survival, not for happiness, because when we're frozen, we're not particularly happy. In fact, we're not breathing well. We're terrified. We're frozen in fear. Meanwhile, in that freeze time, uh, all kinds of chemicals are being pumped into the body. That's what the fear is all about. And those chemicals are preparing us for flight or fright. So little Johnny is sitting in the classroom, kind of not paying much attention, minding his own business, so to speak. And the teacher calls on him. Johnny. What is the answer to the question or something like that? First thing that happens is Johnny freezes. He loses his mind right there in front because of the fear of being called on. Okay. 
Now, the issue is, is that now his body is getting all pumped up. For fight or flight. Not for answering questions. Yeah, all <laughs> he thinks all he's going to get eaten blood. by a rhinoceros. Right, because he's got a rhinoceros <laughs> there in the front of the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so here little Johnny is all pumped up, ready to have battle, all pumped up to run away. And he can't. He's sitting in the classroom and there's nothing to fight with and there's nothing to run away from. And so he's got all these chemicals in his system. And he is what you would call afraid, terrified, freaked out, frozen solid. All right. So that means that classrooms are not conducive to the habitat that humans were uh, evolved in. If we had been evolved in classrooms, then and some kids don't have that reaction. When they're in class, they're paying attention. They've got their wisdom hat on. The teacher calls them on the question. He doesn't know, and he can say, I don't know. Or he can ask another question back to the teacher rather than going to this very primitive behavior of freezing because we can't see the difference between the teacher and a rhinoceros. And believe me, I've had teachers that were really hard to tell. With. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think that one of the classes that they have to take, they take in uh, 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 education uh, school is Rhinoceros 101. So <laughs> let's bring it back to the example of before we were in classrooms and there was a rhinoceros in front of us and we would okay. freeze still. I think that when there's a sense of fear for me, there's unwholesome thoughts perhaps too, mm -hmm. right? But in that situation, when you have a rhinoceros in front of you, if that fear is really supposed to be your teacher, I can't imagine that it would have given those guys whole unwholesome thoughts because they need to think clearly. They need to be they need to be very, very sharp and on point or they're going to die. Right. So I would imagine they probably came to the conclusion that un, I mean, this is all speculation, but imagine they came to the conclusion that all unwholesome thoughts were unproductive for them, especially in those moments. They don't have time to think delusionally. They need to see clearly. They need to be ready. Sure. All right. So, so what we can say then is, is that humanity is not actually suitable for the complex society that humans have created. The humans are still evolving, but we're evolving slower than our environment is evolving. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, cities are not safe. We came out of the jungle because it was unsafe and built our cities in order to feel safe. But it was us jungle bunnies who felt unsafe, who came out of the jungle into the cities. And so now the cities are referred to as concrete jungles because everybody still feels unsafe. He still feels unsafe. Okay. But then 
if those people that were facing rhinoceroses could think clearly so as to not Many die. Of them didn't. Some of them didn't. I mean, there's been some pretty <laughs> disastrous things that have happened to humans. Mm. It's kind of, in okay. fact, it's kind of funny that how could animals as stupid as they are not survive. I have seen people and uh, and mused about it. How can this person be an adult human being living <clears throat> life in this present moment and having survived how stupid they have been for the past number of years? Mm. In other words, why didn't this guy already clutch himself to death? He's so stupid. The answer is, is because he was following his instincts and his instincts were able to keep him alive. And that's all. He didn't do anything wisely, but at least to survive because the instincts are there to keep us alive. But that's all they do is just keep us alive. All the rest is up to us. So people can be really, really, really stupid and still survive. But a lot of them don't. Mm. It depends upon, in fact, if you think about it this way, then it depends upon the environment that they're in. In other words, the person who is operating instinctually and survived, that's because it really wasn't all of that dangerous for him, even though he felt like there was great danger, at least he survived. But the dangers weren't real. In other cases, the dangers are so real that it doesn't matter what instincts he has, he's not going to survive. is not going to survive. So this is one of the reasons why humans have basically taken over the planet is because we have found ways to survive. We built cities. And the cities are fairly safe. uh, Let us say it this way, that Miami is a whole lot safer uh, from pythons than the Everglades. Right? Well, we we built our cities to be safe from the pythons. <clears throat> so there are no pythons in the city. That's the whole point, you see, is that there are no pythons in the city, but the people who were in the Everglades, afraid of pythons, when they went to the city, their fear mechanism stayed, and all they did was found new things to be afraid of, some of which were actually dangerous and some of which were not. Walking out on stage and saying a line, I am a tree, is not dangerous. I just thought, I just saw something kind of cool. Uh-huh. Um, that this, this fear of pythons that people had in the Everglades or rhinoceroses or mm-hmm. insert whatever evil animal. <laughs> um, dangerous animal, not evil. Dangerous, right, right, dangerous. And then going to the cities, um, just replacing that fear, using that same fear mechanism for another subject. Well, it's kind of interesting. It's almost as if if that fear didn't exist anymore, if that fear mechanism didn't exist anymore. I think we would be pretty, I think, I think we would be pretty afraid of our existence after that fear mechanism is gone because our fear mechanism is tied to our existence 
as much as we're afraid, we get to survive. If we're not afraid, we have no guarantees. We have nothing to measure it with. Yes, so our we fear, have wisdom. We can see. That's the point. We have wisdom. But I'm, but I'm, I, I was just saying that maybe that's why the fear is so, we hold that fear so dear and important to us because mm -hmm. we're afraid of dying. It's our very survival. Right, exactly. Yeah. So whenever we feel uh, the fear afraid, we automatically put it as this is a survival issue because yeah. I feel afraid. Mm hmm. Okay, because little Johnny, if he's in front of a rhinoceros, that's a real danger. But the teacher in front of the room is not going to kill him because he doesn't know the answer to a question. That's a false fear. Right? Well, actually, no, the fear is true. The feeling of the fear is true. Little Johnny actually is afraid. But he can't then think very well because his whole body and being is now geared for fight or flight, not for thinking or not for uh, uh, coming up with correct answers. So this this point is, is that uh, when we feel fear, uh, the, the feeling of fear actually means that the, the uh, survival is now an issue. This moment in time, when we feel fear, that means that the body is preparing for death or to, to avoid death. So this is the mechanism of the self, the self-preservation instinct. So we've got to preserve the organism. <coughs> and we conceptually think of that organism as the me. Mm. So when we are not afraid, we're not selfish. Here's an example. You've got a brother or a close friend, someone you've known for many, many years, and he comes to you, never mind the circumstances, he comes to you and wants to borrow $500 or $1,000, something significant, not trivial, but not gargantuan. And if we give him that money, either as a loan or a gift, he's going to be happy and he's going to be grateful, and we're going to have a moment of camaraderie. My generosity and his gratitude work together. But if I say to myself, I need that $500, my survival depends upon it, and I say no to him, then he's dissatisfied and I'm dissatisfied because of my fear. And so this is one of the reasons why we practice generosity as an activity to retrain the mind, because the normal way that a child thinks is in uh, what we call um, zero-sum game. The zero-sum game is, is that if I give my gift away to to another child than I'll do without. I've got my candy bar, and if I give half my candy bar away, then I've only got half a candy bar, All right? So I don't want to share my candy bar. That's my candy bar because in that place, the, the d delusion is because my survival depends upon that candy bar right now. Hmm. And so this is one reason why I'm teaching Kitty uh, to not be selfish.
So when she comes in with, uh, let us say, licking an ice cream cone, I say, where's my ice cream cone? And mom didn't give me one because when they went out shopping, I says, no, I don't want any ice cream. But Kitty comes in with an ice cream cone. And it's hers. And I say, give me, I want to lick, I want to lick. And leaving her in that frame of mind that moment, am I going to let daddy have a lick of my ice cream or is this my ice cream? <clears throat> and so I always get a lick now of the ice cream because she's willing to let it go. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's the training of uh, generosity. Because it actually does, uh, um, let us say, challenge that fear mechanism inside. Oh, well, what will I become without half a candy bar? I've got to give half my candy bar away. Okay. Now, you're the CEO of one of the major corporations, you know, like Microsoft or, uh, uh, and you've got hundreds of millions of dollars as your candy bar. And somebody comes by and says, hey, I want to buy your candy bar. Are you going to give them a hundred million dollars? No, because now that hundred million is really me, and I really need that hundred million dollars. Even though I've got another three hundred million, I'm not good enough without you know. I can't give away that hundred million dollars. It's too important. It's too big. It's too much for uh, issues of survival. So this is why Buddhism teaches that issue of generosity, to learn to give stuff away, to not con- not try to control this is mine, <clears throat> to be able to share. This is actually what Sangha is really all about. Sangha is the environment in which we <clears throat> to share, which means that we're able to come out of our selfishness, coming out of our fear. So this is a very important quality, this spirit, this quality of generosity, of being able to give away things when people ask for them, to be happily willing to, to let it go. Uh, because also that gives you a, a generous heart. Let me finish something off that I've started with you already, because this is a completion point. Remember, we have talked about sukha. A lot. And sukha, as you know, is the exact opposite of dukkha. Okay? So, sukha has the quality of safety and security. We've already talked about that. We have to practice telling ourselves that things are really safe. If little Johnny was able to say, that teacher is just asking me a question, she's not a rhinoceros, and she's not dangerous, then he can take a deep breath and tell the teacher he doesn't know. He doesn't have to stand, sit there in a state of fear. He can get, let it go. Okay. So uh, this quality then of generosity uh, is part then of that safety and security, but then we build with comfort, and then we come with satisfaction. Now, there's something else beyond satisfaction that I would like to introduce to you that is really associated with the generosity. And that is a sense of wealth. That you feel wealthy 
Now, that's not rich with money. It's wealthy in the sense that not only do you have enough, you've got more than enough. And you're willing to share all the enough you've got because you're still going to have enough after you've given all of your enough away. Hmm. That's wealth. Okay, hmm. so the guy that we were talking about that has, let us say, $400 million, and he is not willing to give $100 million of it away is because he does not feel wealthy. He may feel rich, but he doesn't feel wealthy because a wealthy someone will give $100 million here and $100 million there and $100 million there and $100 million there. And he said, wait a minute, I got no more hundreds of millions of dollars. Never mind, I can go get some more. Never mind. We've got enough. That's the feeling of wealth. The feeling of wealth is no matter how much money or how much, uh, uh, let us say, happiness or joy or everything that you give away, you're still going to have enough. That's the feeling of wealth. And the way that we generate that feeling is with the feeling of generosity. And so if uh, uh, in Buddhism, this is part of the reason why everything is supposed to be given freely. Everything is free. We don't even ask for donations. Because if you ask for a donation, even if you don't give the, uh, the, the, the exact um, amount for someone to donate. And I've seen it. In fact, it's quite common in the United States at many churches. Uh, the price of this is a $5 donation. It's not just a $5 fee, it's a $5 donation. So they've, they've gotten that word confused. They're calling it a donation to make it feel good when in fact it's not a donation, it's a fee. <coughs> and if you say that, uh, that people are free to donate any amount of money that they want for the support of it, that's actually putting them under an obligation. What we would rather do is to teach them the feeling of generosity rather than reciprocity. So then they can see that all oh, this retreat, for instance, was freely given. The food was free. Yeah. The bedding was free. The teachings were free. The floor was free. The Buddha Rupa was free. The air was free. And everybody who was participating in that got great joy out of the giving. Maybe I can gain joy by giving also. And this is where the donations actually become a value. Is when people are willing to give it because they feel good by giving. Gives people the sense of wealth, a sense of I can afford this easily. And so taking it, taking uh, the business out of the Dhamma. Is important so that we can teach this quality of generosity, which is also the teaching of a feeling of wealth, which is also part of our sense of well-being. In other words, you can have a sense of well-being and a sense of being broke. That's not as the same feeling as the sense of well-being and the feeling of wealth together. And so how do we develop that feeling of wealth is by giving things away and feeling good that, that someone who got it was benefited from it rather than feeling a sense of loss when we gave it away.
So that means that we're no longer in the zero sum game. We're in a win win situation. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that two candles, one was lit and the other one was not lit? And the person brought the two candles together for the one that's lit to help to light the second uh, one. And the one who uh, the candle that's got the flame saying, wait a minute. How much are you willing to pay me for the fire I'm going to give you? It doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> no. No, that fire, like information, like joy, like anger, like all of these other things are very soft, which means that when you give it away, you've got two copies. Money, on the other hand, is different than that. That means that if I give money away, then I don't have the money that I gave. That's money is a zero sum game in most people's view. But if you have the idea, no, I can give this away because money will come. Easy come, easy go. Then I don't have to measure what I'm giving now with what I have now. I can go ahead and give. Knowing that. Money's going to come, there's not an issue with money. But we are taught in our culture that money doesn't come easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you have a so it's not well, easy. And so it's not easy. But when you have a feeling of wealth, when you have the attitude of wealth, then money comes easy. And that the um, uh, the self-help books talk about this, but they don't understand, even though that this is an attitude change, they don't understand how to get somebody to change their attitude. Just going to the mirror and say, I feel wealthy is not going to give you the feeling of wealth. So what is I ask you a question? giving gifts? That's what's going to give you the feeling of wealth is by giving gifts to people, being generous, being kind. And one thing that you can have plenty of and be completely wealthy of is joy and smiles so that you can always give people smiles. Because you're wealthy, you've got a ton of them. <laughs> And so this is the, the furtherance of the attitude that's really uh, back around into the circle. And that is fear, or fearlessness or safety and security, comfort, satisfaction, wealth. And that wealth then helps us feel even more secure and even more comfortable and even more satisfied and even more wealthy. And even more wealthy means us making us feel even more secure. This is sukkah. And it ends with the feeling of wealth. And how we develop that is through practicing generosity. So throughout the day, you can begin to uh, think of, well, what can you do just to uh, practice generosity? If you find beggars on the street, that was what Willie was doing for a while when he was uh, um, living in uh, Manhattan uh, and running the subway. 
that there was all kinds of homeless people around that were being ignored and whatnot. And he wound up making friends with a whole bunch of people. He started with a quarter. And before the COVID, he was winding up giving, going into the coffee shop and getting coffee and croissants or bagels and giving the coffee and the croissant to the homeless person. And made some friends, great generosity. Now, in our culture, you're not supposed to feel, feed panhandlers. They've got laws against vagrancy. Why is that? Because they want people to work. But if the people who wanted you to work had the feeling of wealth and generosity on their own, then they wouldn't want you to work. They would just give you the salary without you having to work for it. So you could say that capitalism is actually institutionalized selfishness. Capitalism is institutionalized or systematic or systemic selfishness. Can I ask you a question that's sort of off topic from this? Oh, off topic. Okay. So your mind, okay, off topic. <laughs> it's just, um, well, you remember I was talking to you about how I was seeing through these I thoughts and that there is really nothing to them and mm -hmm. all this. And so even when I did the Anapanasati, um, that felt different. In fact, it, it felt as though it wasn't working or wasn't, you know, um, cultivating or developing that wholesomeness that it was before. So um, I was curious if, if that's something that is okay or what could I do about that? Do about exactly what? So ever since I seem to see through those thoughts um, and, and see them as just thoughts and not like they're me, uh, the unwholesome ones too, it seems that when I go back with the Anapanasati practice toward those unwholesome thoughts, it doesn't work the way it did before. In fact, it, it feels like it doesn't work at all. And what so do you I was mean curious. I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, typically when I see an unwholesome thought, like I'm worried, I, like I need to do something or I need to keep this, I need to keep this up, whatever that is, right? Mm -hmm. I would... I would like congratulate myself for seeing that, right? Not pay, I don't need to pay any more attention to that dukkha. I can just, you know, okay. cultivate the wholesome, glad in the mind, right? But now when I see those thoughts, it doesn't occur to me as just like, it doesn't occur to me as necessarily as something to like get away from as much as it is empty. Like it's like, I need to do something right ah, now. But I'll look that's at it. a new thought 
that is a whole, you're still doing Anapanasati, you're just doing it at a more sophisticated level. Okay. Okay. Uh, because now you're seeing the thought as empty, as opposed to seeing the thought as, oh no, I've got to go do something. I have to go do something because <coughs> I have a thought, right? Now you're saying, right. oh, it's just a thought. Yeah, like there's nothing really like, right. so <laughs> like the next what do I actually need to do? <laughs> exactly, there's nothing to do. And that's the wholesome thought. Mm. This really is that easy. Mm-hmm. It's an easy practice, easy peasy. In fact, that's what the whole practice is, is learning how to take it easy. And then... What about this? I mean, when I say congratulations or success, even that seems like empty. Sometimes. Yeah, but then you can just take a deep breath and relax. Okay. So there's nothing to it. I can drop the congratulations or? Why should you bother to do that? What are you going to substitute the congratulations with? You screwed up. Right. I don't know. Um. You could say that the congratulations is actually the taking of the prize. Can you imagine someone in the Olympics running the 100-yard dash and he wins it handsomely? And after he wins the race, he wipes off his face with his towel and leaves the stadium while they're playing the music, and he doesn't bother to go stand on the podium and get his gold medal? No. Sometimes it's good to go stand and get that congratulations, get that recognition that you just did a good job. But it could be a soft congratulations. You don't have to have it jumping all over the place, especially after you've done that same congratulations for the same thing now 30 times. Just congratulations get soft, but there's still a congratulations in there. Recognition of success. Um, and then Otherwise, there's it- going to be a recognition of failure or there's going to be just more questions and more questions and more questions and more questions. The question, the real issue is, is that do you have enough just to relax? And you do. You already have all the information you need, especially the one that you got the last time that we recall, you called, and that was the one of, can you be satisfied and still not get what you want? Because there's one more step to that. And that is, is that can you like something without wanting it? I've been thinking about that. Yeah, that you'd like to tell Damarato that story. <clears throat> but you don't want to come to satisfied whether he listens to your story or not. And it's it's kind of like in the in the in the reminder and the reminding of myself in the reminding in reminding myself that I'm satisfied even though I didn't get what I want, that I do recognize satisfaction in the reminding mm-hmm. of it. I well, that reminding of the satisfaction is a congratulations. <clears throat> Which is satisfaction. 
Congratulations. Being satisfied, finally. And so whenever doubts or confusion or it's not working like it did and all of that kind of stuff, you can say, oh, that's just another unwholesome thought. Never mind. I can relax. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 is it okay now to use that as to use a new toy or the toy is well is it really not working what's not working like to like investigate it to ask questions about it until i see through it like oh yeah there it is again well, there it is a belief just, in an eye that thinks that this is what's happening right well the first time it may take a little while to see through it but after you've seen through it once you've seen through it every time it comes up ah, i see you <laughs> I recognize what you are. I've seen you before. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. the thing. Is so when those doubts come, the doubts of, uh, or the thrill is gone, or the doubts of it's not working anymore, or the doubts of uh, congratulations is not uh, useful anymore, those are just more doubts. And you're in the habit of having a lot of doubts. And the reason for it is, is because you've got the idea that you want to cover all the bases. That's that be perfect. And so be perfect keeps building doubts. But that's another one. Like, like I'm going to cover all the bases. I want to get it right. There's nothing. There. There's nothing to that. There's nothing there. <laughs> exactly. It's just, it's just a, it, there's nothing to it. There's just, a, it's just a, there's just words. That's all it is. There's mm -hmm. nothing there. And yet you have been driven your whole life in trying to get it right, trying to get all the ducks in a row, trying to be perfect, trying to do it right. And there's really nothing to any of that. And, and doing it right is just an imaginary perceived mm -hmm. thing that I don't even know what is. Like, I don't even know what that is. Oh, well, that imaginary that regard, perceived. Now we can see then that what is doubt is just imagining more what ifs. And say, well, maybe this what if belongs in there. Maybe this what if belongs in there. Hmm. Okay. Now, uh, we've we I think we've mentioned uh, OCD. This. Have you ever heard of OCD? Yeah, I used okay. to. I was diagnosed as that when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a surprise! <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, the, the point about obsessive compulsive disorder is the hallmark of what about ism. In other words, what could possibly go wrong? That is so funny. That is crazy. What, when I, I just think you'd find this kind of entertaining because this is exactly how my mind is today. When I was a kid, when I was younger, I thought that I was haunted and that there were ghosts all around me. So every night before I went to bed, an hour before I went to bed, I made sure my sheets were crisply folded underneath the mattress, that my door was tucked in just right up to the door stopper, that my closet doors, there were no cracks, 
and that I said to both sides of my bed probably about three or four times, I pray you don't do anything to me. Please don't give me a bad dream. It's okay, spirits. It's okay, spirits. I'd rub the Buddha's belly for good luck. <laughs> I did all of these things. And I literally believe that if I didn't do them, I would have nightmares. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would get messed with in some way by a ghost. So you were obsessing with the, uh, the layout of the bedroom. Now, mm-hmm. here's something. In Thailand, they do not treat children the way that they do in the West. In the West, the idea is is that, oh, if we've got these many kids, we've got to have a house this big. And that it's okay, kind of, for two brothers or two sisters to share the same bedroom, but a mother and a sister, no. So that means more and more and more bedrooms. In Thailand, the children are allowed to sleep with their parents as long as they want to. It's the child's choice. And Kitty sometimes sleeps with us, sometimes mom sleeps. We got two beds in the same room. And sometimes all three of us in one bed, and sometimes all three of us in the other bed. Sometimes I'm in one bed and they're in the other. Sometimes Tam is in the bed with me, and then sometimes Kitty will come and call in bed also. That's not well. Uh, that's not uh, an option in the West. That the point that you're making here is that you were in your own room. If you had had the parents' protection for that little kid and slept with them, you would probably not have developed that obsessive ritual system that you created. Yeah, and it was also because I was afraid ghosts were going to get me. Uh huh. And I did have nightmares often, actually. I did have nightmares a lot when I was a kid. All right. Well, this is the typical abandonment issue that if a child is there with his mommy and daddy, then he's not going to be afraid. He feels secure. But when the child is alone, he feels danger. And in order to give justification to the feeling of danger, we invent ghosts to be afraid of. Oh, man. And so you can see the little uh, story of little Johnny goes to daddy uh, in the bedroom and say, daddy, there's a bear in the closet. And daddy very carefully thinking that he's doing the right thing, takes Johnny to the little um, uh, closet, opens the closet and shows Johnny there's no bears in there. A so, much better thing for the daddy to do would say, OK, let's not worry about the bear in the closet. You can come sleep in our bed tonight. Because that's what the real little kids really got. He wants to feel secure. He wants to feel safe. So are doubts, doubts, just the justification of fear? It's just more ghosts. Of danger. The doubt is just more ghosts. To justify whatever. Yeah, that there's something to be afraid of. Right, there is, because I have fear, there's something to be afraid of, something outside to be afraid of. And so you fold the sheets, you close the door, and all of that kind of obsessive, compulsive behavior that the little child will do. And uh, if that's not interrupted, they will, can go through their, uh, into their adulthood doing exactly the same things. 
maybe expanding it. So now instead of doing the sheets just right in the bedroom, now you've got to have every door and every window of the whole house exactly correct. And the, and the story is That's about what it is. the hands being dirty. And so we wash the hands. And then a minute later, well, maybe they're dirty again. And so we wash them again. And after washing the hands 15 or 20 times a day, somebody needs to take the soap away from that obsessive compulsive. Otherwise, he's going to fall hands because he keeps washing his hands because he still feels fear and thinks that the ghost is, it may be because there's dirt. So that kind of compulsive disorder, his what is a what if-ism, is there must there may be some dirt. Yours was there may be ghost. Now that you're an adult, you can find all kinds of things. And in fact, your ghosts are now ghosts about how to practice Anapanasati. Because you yeah. gotta get it right. You gotta yeah. get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's the same thing. <laughs> Holy shit. And see, so you can't get this kind of stuff out of a book. This has got to be somebody who can see that stuff because they've seen it before and seen it in themselves to explain it to you in a way so that you can say, you're right, darn it. I'm I'm doing with Anapanasati the same thing I did with my bed at night. I'm being obsessive compulsive instead of having ghosts that I had to go uh, appease. Now I've got to have the rules of Anapanasati appease so that I get it all done. Yeah. Where the real issue is the fear. Keep coming back to when you have those doubts, am I doing it right or anything like that? You say, no, fine, I'm okay right now. I can relax. I have That's there's it. nothing really to yeah. be afraid of. That's it. Yeah. And when those thoughts come up, like, oh, there really is something or this isn't working or I need to do something different. That's mm -hmm. that same stuff to keep wow. the ghosts from getting me. Mm -hmm. But there's no ghost. There's no ghost. It's the fear of ghosts or the fear. The fear of ghosts. Yeah. And the of ghost is a concept. The fear is real. Mm. And as you've heard before, fear and doubt are intertwined, interrelated, the same thing. So maybe I can be satisfied with my fear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or satisfied that you can see the fear directly. Oh, that's what it is. Aha, yeah. I see you, Mara. And be satisfied with, ah, I see you. Because before you hadn't been able to see it, you just the fear, and now you've got to have all of these what about isms that you put, developed as a child. And in that time, the what about isms was what about ghost isms. Now it's what about getting it right isms. Yeah, and I can see even like as we're talking and throughout the whole most of the conversation, there's been like a well, what about this later? What about that? Or how am I going to be able to do this? Mm -hmm. And but but I'm holding it more lightly now. I can see it more like, oh, OK, I just well, see that stuff do, going on. Right. Well, we're peeling it off one little layer at a time, one little layer at a time. 
Yeah. So it's becoming less and less important because you can you know see how you more like bubbles of foam. Yeah. So you know how you said that when you have the thought, the thought conditions the feelings. So mm -hmm. the thought will be like that drop of adrenaline, but you have to catch that thought first because if you don't catch it, then two minutes later or a second later, you're having the feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the third thing happens is what about is oh, the ghost. <laughs> So mm. something triggers the fear. Once the fear is there, now we have to deal with the fear. And if we deal with that fear ignorantly, we'll think of it that it's ghost or that it don't have anything correct, rather than looking at the fear itself and saying, oh, I feel fear right now. I wonder how I talked myself into feeling this way. Mm. And so we begin to look at the fear directly, examining the fear directly, taking a deep breath, say, can I move that fear? Can I move that anxiety? Can I make it go up? Can I make it go down? In other words, can you learn to control it? Rather than running away from it or trying to appease it. Like you were appeasing the ghost by folding your bed sheets. You just get it just... right, everything will be okay. Instead of just saying, everything is already okay. <laughs> and there's nothing to fear here. Hmm. So if I'm noticing the thoughts of like, what about this? How is this going to happen later? But like, I'm kind of seeing them, like flashes hmm. of them. And I'm not necessarily going like, oh, I see you and then congratulating myself, but I'm just seeing them and then mm -hmm. still kind of like having a, a somewhat of a level of satisfaction. Is that OK or is what's required? <laughs> oh, that's it again, isn't it? Yeah, there it is again, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh god congratulations <laughs> uh, for waking up you Good got god. me <laughs> you got you <laughs> so this is all there is to it is to say that I can see that stuff I've got to get it right. What about this and what about that? The answer is, you can just drop all of that. Just let it go. Everything's already okay. So just to clarify, <laughs> I don't, I don't have to. Uh, it's not, I don't have to always consistently be like oh i see you and then say congratulations and then be satisfied it doesn't have to be all those steps i can just see oh. it going on can you like, imagine oh, okay. a student can you imagine a student playing learning to play the piano and he has chopsticks down so that he can play that in public and then his music teacher gives him a new piece of music and he says, I don't know what to do with this, but I do know how to play chopsticks. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, yeah. there, once you learn to play chopsticks, there's more to it. There's more music there to learn. Okay. 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 But you, you learn it 
not by playing the same chopsticks over and over again, which is what you're doing. The doubts, the worries. Say, am I doing it? Okay, so now you need to learn to play the song of, hey, everything's already okay. Hey, everything's already okay. Yeah. I got it. I gotcha. Relaxing from the whole thing. That's like that. That's like that thorn used to pick out another thorn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because the, that that obsess that that was an obsessive thing <laughs> for a while. Oh, I see you. Congratulations. Oh, I see you. Congratulations. <sighs> but it's nice to be like, oh, mm, that's okay. I can be satisfied anyway. Yes. That's so this hard. is all a process. And I congratulate you for going through the process. I saw some videos of you and Dan after we got off the phone last time. Okay. It was very, very, very encouraging to see. Very encouraging to see that Dan, who seems to have no issues, no problems whatsoever, actually what came out of his mouth in that call was, I'm struggling with, or I thought yesterday was a bad day. It was crazy to hear him talking <laughs> like that. It was like, wow, if he can do it, I can do it. Certainly. So, that's what Saga so, is all about. Yeah. You it read Dhamma out of a book and you're not going to get anywhere. No, oh, it gave me great inspiration. Mm, good. Give me great inspiration. Excellent. And you know what else I learned from watching him? I learned that I could afford to listen more to you specifically, in mm. particular, but really anybody. And that, like, I noticed how much he didn't talk. Just listen to you. Yeah. And it was nice. Good. So uh so I'm 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 going to become your friend now. <laughs> Good. That's what this is all about. I don't need students, I need friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I really say excellent. Good. Alex, we'll see you later. This has been a good call. This has been excellent for you. This has been really nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We'll see you. Okay. All okay. right. Bye-bye.